everyone, I'm Riyad Akyol and this is Dignified Resilience, a podcast on fresh narratives on confronting despair, alleviating distress, and forging ahead. In this podcast, we hear from people around the globe at all stages of life and variety of industries and learn how to channel dignified resilience to survive, feed the soul to heal, and connect with others through inspiring compassionate actions and behavior. At the same time, I aim to grow a global conversation that seeks to better acknowledge different sociocultural perspectives on meaningfully weathering life's adversities and achieving well-being. Here is a noble and humane invitation for surpassing our old selves by learning about and from other people's moving forces and limitations for successfully overcoming affliction and ache. Remember, we have different lives, distinct pathways, cultures, and contexts, but we can find common ground in supporting dignified resilience anywhere. So let's go then. Hello everyone, and welcome to Dignified Resilience. I'm so excited to have Wajahat Ali as my guest today. Wajahat Ali is a New York Times contributing op-ed writer, a TED speaker, an award-winning playwright, a recovering attorney, as I saw online, um, and a former consultant for the U.S. State Department. Ali has given myriad keynote uh, speeches around the world, from TED to the Aspen Ideas Festival to Google to UN to the New Yorker Festival. And I had to actually Google which play, when it says playwright, um, he's the author of The Domestic Crusaders, which is the first major play about Muslim Americans post 9-11, which was published by McSweeney's and then performed off-Broadway and at Kennedy Center. And Waj is also a Peabody-nominated producer of the series The Secret Life of Muslims, uh, which is a series of short-form first-person documentary films featuring a diverse set of American Muslims. He was also the lead author and researcher of Fear Inc., uh, Roots of Islamophobia Network in America, the seminal report for, um, from the Center for American Progress. And the bio is long, but it matters to me because I want to set the context and various reasons why I'm so happy to have Waj on my podcast today. Um, and I do, I thought it was very funny and original uh, how the description uh, on the Lavin agency stands for Waj, and that is that he's a besides the official you know, titles, it says he's a new kind of public intellectual, young, exuberant, and optimistic, as I quote. He speaks on the multifaceted American experience covering our growing need for cultural unity, racial diversity, and inclusion to fight forces of hate and division. In hilarious, politically up-to-the-minute talks, Ali shows how to learn from and join what he calls the multicultural coalition of the willing, the emergent generation poise for social change. My God, they did such a good job of describing yeah, yeah. this. Yeah, I did not write that. Uh, that's like written by my mother, I think. They, they <laughs> make me sound I mean, My wife listens to that and she goes, I want to marry this Wajahatli. Who is this guy? Right. No, yeah, you see, you're too humble. Yeah, but yeah. Um, one of the, I mean, before, obviously, hi, Waj, and welcome to uh, Dignified Resilience. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, speaking about Dignified Resilience, uh, that's your life. Uh, you know, we're, uh, I mean, we're, I guess you could say, honoring the anniversary of um, that uh, resilience in life and massacre in Bosnia. Uh, it's a story that oftentimes is forgotten, but a story which uh, still echoes. And I was in Sarajevo. I was lucky enough to visit uh, Bosnia a couple of years ago. And uh, it's, it's stunning to just walk the streets, right? And, and you see this 
beautiful mosaic of cultures. Uh, I went during Ramadan, just happened to be there during Ramadan. And so here we are in the streets of uh, Sarajevo opening our fast. And there were some, uh, uh, some Turks brought some whirling dervishes and there were the Adhan, but then there was also a church and there were also like tourists. And then amidst it all, there was, um, as you know, there's uh, 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 graves uh, of, young, of young men uh, who died not too long ago. So um, anyone who has endured that or survived that uh, has a, a dignified resilience. And I think uh, you, with your story and your history, kind of embody that. So thank you for having me on your show. Watch. Um... Thank you for saying that. And I was going to note that I did notice that um, on July uh, 11th this year, you did make a retweet on your big platform through social media of uh, a tweet which was talking about the commemoration of 25 years of the Srebrenica genocide, which, by the way, was just a culmination of the whole campaign of Bosnian genocide from 92 to 95 to exterminate Bosnian Muslims, uh, Bosniaks. So um, I appreciate that precisely because um, I'm not sure how many people in um, United States are aware of it, considering how much specifically Bosnian genocide continues being inspiration for far right from Brevik to Christchurch, right, right. which clearly cite stereotypes that were used by Bosnian Serbs in the manifestos, uh, etc. So I think that um, I, I appreciate that and your awareness and raising awareness uh, about it. Well, I could have done more. You know, I, I, I thank you for saying that, but it, it's very little. As it was happening, and, and unfortunately, and this is not an excuse but an explanation, with the, with the blitzkrieg of chaos that we have in the United States of America, where I'm forgetting the latest stupid thing that Trump said because I still have demon semen or demon seeds still stuck in my head from, from yesterday, where this, this, this administration is promoting a quack doctor uh, who is against masks and talking about alien DNA and demon semen and a hydroxychloroquine. And then you see the corruption and then you see what's happening, of course, with COVID and the recession and happening across the countries. It's still important for us to keep in mind that the past still haunts us to the present, especially with the Srebrenica massacre. And like you said, you know, there are people who uh, love the war criminal uh, Milosevic and they said he didn't go far enough and that he was a nationalist and not a war criminal. And this is like, you know, a smear campaign against him and people like Andres Brevik, I'm glad you mentioned it, you know, very quickly, people forget that was what, nine years ago, he killed 77 people left behind a 1500 page manifesto in Norway, because he wanted to punish Europe for being pro Muslim. And the sins of Brevik echo, uh, not just uh, across Europe, but around the world, like just last year, Christchurch, that was a terrorist uh, who went to New Zealand, was inspired by Brevik and said the same thing. I have to punish Muslims because they're trying to replace us. And then a few months later in El Paso, Texas, Riada, a man was inspired by the Christchurch killer to murder Hispanics because he said they were the invaders. So, I mean, I know we have a lot to talk about, but I feel like when you mention that, why this still echoes, right? Like, first of all, the people of Bosnia, it's amazing because you see the joy, but you also see sadness. There's still trauma there. I mean, it's it's when you walk, you see graves uh, amidst beauty, and and you talk to people, and there's there's still trauma. Uh, the people, everyone knows someone, uh, and then you talk about dignified re resilience. Uh, you know, we often talk about resilience when it comes to jobs or when it comes to relationships in America. But what do you say to a people whose family members were systematically exterminated? And then that extermination 
is being lauded and praised by extremists 25 years later. Uh, and also on the flip side, people forget that what radicalized some Muslims in Europe uh, 20 years ago was what was happening to Bosnian Muslims. And they said, look, quote unquote, the West hates us. And that's how Al-Qaeda, the flip side of the extremists, two sides of the same coin, were able to inspire a young generation of jihadis in Europe. And, and they said, look what they did to the Bosnians. So that's all I'm saying is, is that the, the past is connected to the present. And if we really want to talk about dignified resilience, we should listen to people like you uh, and, and Bosnian Muslims who uh, have found a way to find meaning and hope and dignity despite all the suffering. Uh, I really appreciate that. Uh, I mean, the name of this podcast, Dignified Resilience, uh, came out precisely out of my contemplation in December last year when Nobel Prize for Literature was awarded to Peter Hanke, who is a star. Oh, yeah. denier of the Bosnian genocide. And I was literally, I mean, I, I did an interview with foreign policy, but the night before it, I was thinking in my head because there were different responses within the Bosnia community of what we should do when the West doesn't care and they don't care, which is true. But I was thinking, okay, they're going to give him the award on 9 December. What are we going to do on December 10? Mm. What is going to be our step the day after? How are we going to respond? So I was literally putting my son to sleep and I was thinking about it, thinking about it, and then it was just like aha moment, like it's resilience, but it has to be something that will not make us look like victim. And it was just like dignity, and then it was dignified resilience. So, and, and then I started talking and thinking about it more and just made sense because that's what I think people from my community and my family actually had exhibited throughout the years already. And the only uh, two things that I would like to add, considering you you started this, uh, and this is very, as a sensitive topic for, for all of us is that a genocide denial is on the rise. We have had continuous reports and Srebrenica Memorial Center did one this year and we have Europe Islamophobia reports done by think tanks from within Europe. So it's not like things, it's status quo and the, there's no more violence and this. No, we have the same ethno-nationalist ideologies yeah. that started this war that are on the rise. I mean, the political conjuncture in Europe, which is uh, very like leaning towards right wing in so many countries. Um, it gets all the more important for, for people in diaspora, for all the allies, if I may call it that way, wherever they are to just raise awareness, because these are facts that are internationally established by bazillion institutions. So it becomes all the more hilarious when, uh, when, when this denial is, is perpetuated. And, and I think you're saying hilarious tongue-in-cheek with a tremendous uh, irony because it's uh, it's dark humor. Uh, and, and, you know, this is just me as an observer. Uh, what you said uh, just reminded me that when I was there, it, you know, it, and we had this conversation with both people who are experts and people who live there, it, it seemed like there was a kind of a stalemate, but the fear was that the, there was tension in the air. And so when you have tension in the air, when it's still simmering, when the, when the ghosts haven't died yet and still haunt us, and this, this memory is being weaponized and used through disinformation and propaganda and, and being seen as like, you know, uh, an attack on European identity. And no, there was no such thing as Islamophobia and a massacre. And they, they're just spreading it and making you feel guilty. You sit there and wonder, you know, as the right wing, both in the United States and Europe, is, is propagating their replacement theory narrative that says that Muslims and Jews and blacks and immigrants are trying to replace the, the Western civilization, which means white or their concept of white. Um, and we're seeing this focus specifically against immigrants and Muslims, both here and in Europe. You hear what Trump says. You wonder, God forbid, 
you know, it's it 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 just it always begins with words. I was in Auschwitz uh, two years ago, and the the my travel guide, whose grandfather survived Auschwitz, he told me it always begins with words. It always begins with language. Uh, people become dehumanized, become rodents, rats, swarm, invaders, uh, the Middle Easterners, the criminals, the MS13, and how quickly the dehumanization of people can easily rationalize a society into putting them into camps, locking them up, putting kids in detention camps, separated from their families, uh, or killing them. Uh, and then fast forward just 25 years later with the memory still lingering. And like you said, instead of all of us agreeing that this was a horrible genocide and we should not be repeated, now people are saying, but was it really a genocide? Was it really a genocide? I think it's a lie. And, and so it's just something, I think I just, for the people who are listening, I think, uh, the reason why, I mean, look, me and Riyadh didn't have a uh, an outline, so we just started talking. And so I apologize, Riyadh, for like giving you my thoughts on this. I didn't want to trigger you at all. I know how sensitive this is, but uh, I think people just have to connect the dots. I think that's what oftentimes when I'm asked to come on and comment, they ask me to connect the dots. And I'm trying to connect the dots for people is that what seems foreign to you is something which actually will come home. And if you don't believe me, I'll end it on this. If you were paying attention to the streets of Portland, if you were seeing the federal police that came out, uh, unidentified, literally beating people up, putting them in unmarked vans, that's the war on terror. And people were fine with the war on terror 20 years ago because the enemy was Muslims. And we created the DHS, and we militarized the police, and the world was our battleground. But that war on terror has now come home to the suburban streets of America. The battlefield are our communities. And the enemy are American citizens protesting police brutality. So if you think this is not connected, you're not paying attention. Yeah, and um, I do want to add just a, a few things which I caught while you were speaking. First, of course, I'm not an American citizen. I, but now that I live here, um, I, I think about uh, so much history which I have to learn and grapple with. And I think that what was also important um, is also that that you said, it, or at least their concept or conception of white, because we happen, Bosniaks happen to be indigenous Muslim population in Europe. We are not first or second generation of um, immigrants, uh, as is the case in majority of Western Europe. And even that existence is denied to us. We have been slaughtered by the Bosnian Serbs, by their ideological conceptions as a genetic material that's a waste. And war criminals like Bidan mm. have been convicted as war criminals. So like for me here, it's so complplicated to have Srebrenica genocide commemoration and you know look at this color of my skin, which happens to be white, and then read everything that's happening here. And everybody who might be listening and, and just kind of to complicate things in terms of both diversity and plurality of Muslims and the kind of dehumanizing practices that happen, like you say, as a pattern, but also with different regional manifestations. Mm. And it makes me so much more, uh, I guess, humble when I live here now to keep learning about different contexts and horrors and to just, with humility, shut my mouth up no you shouldn't shut your mouth up because i'm i'm glad you sp I, I i deliberately talked about the whiteness aspect hoping that you'd pick up the thread and i'm glad you did <laughs> yeah yeah it, it was it was it was a deliberate 
I'm going to edit this part because watch, I'm so, um, it, it's, it's really complicated. This time in history in the United States is something that I'm keeping myself out of. I just had the commemoration. That's what I'm talking oh, about, yeah. you know, like trauma that triggers back because precisely the weeks before the commemoration, we all relive this mm. because we so many things we dig into archives the new classified documents and it's just trauma and re-trauma and re-trauma so i always say the only the the first and the most important way with which i will approach anybody that i talk to is humility yeah and hope that other people come to me with humility because uh, it's complicated if that makes sense no of course it makes sense i you know viet win who's a writer uh, he's an yeah. immigrant, uh, you know, Vietnamese uh, immigrant, uh, American uh, immigrant, but writes often about the Vietnamese diaspora and um, the generation that survived the trauma of the Vietnamese War. He has a line, which I'm going to paraphrase, which is that uh, you first uh, fight the war and survive it, and then you fight the war in memory, right? So it's like, you, it's like the, the war is fought twice, once on the battlefield and then in memory. So it's like enduring and uh, unending. And, uh, you know, I it was speaking about humility. What do I know? I, I'm just an observer, which is, I kept saying is I can only imagine and I don't even want to imagine what your generation has gone through. So when people say dignified resilience and the reason why this prompted this conversation is, uh, you know, yeah, there's ways of people saying, oh, you're resilient because you lost a job. You're resilient because you're surviving a pandemic or you're resilient because of what happened to your kid or you're resilient because, you know, of illness. But then I, when I think about really dignified resilience, uh, that's what inspired my, me just to start talking about my trip to Bosnia because it's that generation that you just see them living with hope, but also sadness, with joy and life, but also next to a graveyard of a generation decimated, right? And, and, and the reason why I would humbly encourage you to speak and write more, uh, and, and I appreciate the fact that you want to listen, especially this moment in time, is because the story needs to be told. The story is filled with many complex complex interactions which need to be unraveled because superficially you look white mm -hmm. you are european trump's base will probably accept you you don't come from the whole countries but you are muslim and your name is riala and mm -hmm. it goes right up against the narrative of some of trump's base because you are the enemy so you are both us and them you're an immigrant <laughs> from a european country that is a scary country because it has a Muslim majority population. You look white, but once you start talking, you're like, wait a second, she's Muslim, and your Muslim, your Musliminess otherizes you both in Europe. I don't reject, by the way, yeah. additionally. I don't reject my Muslimness, yeah. but I that's a, that's another thing, and you don't reject it. So you claim it. So your Musliminess makes you an other both in Europe and the United States of America. And, and, exactly. e and even with people of color, then you have some interesting tension because people of color be like, Riyadh, you have no idea. You're not black, you're not brown. But then you be like, I know I'm white, but as soon as they know I'm a Bosnian Muslim, I'm not white. And it just shows to, it just shows to show you how whiteness, just like race is a social construct. And then again, to connect the dots, Irish Catholics were not considered white in this country. Eastern European Jews were not considered white in this country. Italians were not considered white in this country until they were. Uh, and then the question then is, who will whiteness accept? It hasn't accepted black people, hasn't accepted Latinos, hasn't accepted uh, South Asians. And it seems, by the way, it won't even accept Riada, who is, I guess, whitish looking. I don't looking. Know how to live in that world. Yeah. Exactly. That's why I want to just, this is just 
both therapeutic and triggering, but in a good way because um, because there's so many layers to to the conversation and this kind of conversation could not have happened with everybody. Uh, I think even though we have never met, uh, but you know we've known off each other through friends uh, who, who 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 are dear friends. So you know, like a friend of a friend must be like somebody who you might become a friend. Um, it's it's uh, it's important to feel safe in a safe space or where you feel that where I felt that I could say this because it's uh, because it's complicated from European far right. United States, you know, like right extremists uh, and we progressive left uh, figures who are very important in the United States. Mm. For example, Noam Chomsky, he's a hero for so many people in the United States for so many things, but no Bosniak could ever or read anything that, you know, Chomsky might say because he's a genocide denier. And I do also want to just conclude this by saying how we are a weird, um, a weird, for many people, we're an anomaly. And, and we don't fit into many boxes that people want to put us mm. in in any way. And the sadness is because this is such a small community in terms of the destruction that's been going on throughout years. I hope that your listeners, and I know a lot of them are very, uh, you know, progressive on, on uh, in American political spectrum. And I, you know, I'm, Again, uh, I'm just trying to bring nuance, and I just had to mention Chomsky because he's such a huge figure, uh, but there's a lot of pain that um, ideological blindness may bring, and I just urge people to read a little bit more, and um, that's one of the good things about social media. There are a lot of bad things about social media, which we'll get to in terms of the connection and platforms and uh, being able to put it out there. But you completely honored me and my people, whereas I wanted to honor you and your family. So let's start honoring you and your family. And uh, because that is really important because, and there are so many people who have been in similar situation like you have. And I do want to uh, really, really talk about it Mm. I will say one thing. There is a Holocaust survivor, Edith Grieger. Uh, she wrote a book and Oprah did a talk with her. And uh, she's a therapist in California right now. And uh, she said, when people come to me with a trauma as clients and they say, but I'm embarrassed to tell you about something. You're, you know, you're a survivor of the Holocaust. Mm. My trauma is nothing against you. And one thing which I remember from that book, and I put it on Twitter saying not a lot of people might agree with that, is that she said, I never want to measure pain or trauma. Mm. I want people and my clients to get from interaction with me or from her book is if she did it, I can do it too. Mm. How empowering is that? That You know, like a Holocaust survivor, it's like, if I did it, she did it. And I'm also saying that because I really appreciate a pattern that I noticed in a few of your tweets where you put something, I did this interview, I did this podcast, and then you say, hope it helps. I think that's so thoughtful and that's precisely um, the, the actual acknowledgement of it. You, because it's difficult for you to talk about everything that your family went through as well, but you do it because you hope that it helps other people. So that, I yeah, that's, that's that. one of the intentions. I mean, that's, that's, you know, it's, it's, no, I appreciate that. And, I'm, and it's very interesting what you mentioned about trauma. And it's something that I've been thinking about as well, because, um, my wife, who I married way up, uh, just like Mustafa married way up. Uh, my wife is smarter than me. My wife is better educated. She's better looking. She's nicer. 
Uh, but she's all she's a doctor, a family health practitioner, but she's also an expert on women's health and uh, victims of trauma, right? So my wife uh, has said essentially that you know what we kind of went through with our daughter's stage four cancer last year was a traumatic experience. And you know, I, having studied trauma, it, yes, it, it it is a traumatic experience. But I've always been loath to kind of call it that, precisely based on what you said. Is even talking to you, uh, speaking about trauma, you know trauma. Bosnians know trauma. Speaking about trauma, Holocaust survivors know trauma. At the same time, though, what what that the the capacity of that one psychiatrist who was a Holocaust survivor, it, her trauma allowed her to expand. Her generosity, her kindness, and empathy—right? Not do the not do the competition, or not say, "Oh, you think you have trauma? Uh, let me tell you." Because human beings, and we've mentioned this before in this podcast, like everyone has their own experiences. Some people have lost a job, which is very traumatic for them. Some people got a divorce, and my friends who've gone through divorce—they'll tell you it's like taking two years off your life uh, for, for the really disastrous ones, right? Some people they've lost a loved one in COVID, so we all experience pain um, in a different way. It doesn't matter if you're upper class or lower class. And, and some of us experience more pain than others, obviously. But I think we're all human beings who experience joy and pain, uh, different levels of trauma. And, and I think I've tried to come to peace slowly with the realization that maybe it's okay for my wife and I to say that, yes, that was a traumatic experience, while not dishonoring men and women who live through a type of challenge and trauma every day around the world that we don't experience due to our privilege, right? And, and, and because at the same time, it's, it's like me coming from a place of privilege and not trying to stomp on anyone. Like, who am I to say, Riada, let me tell you about trauma. And you're like, word, really? Would you have to? I'm a Bosnian. <laughs> like, so, but it's, it is something where sharing that story of Nuseba, uh, the fact that she had stage four cancer last year, the fact that it hit us out of nowhere, she was two, about to turn three. The fact that the cancer was all over her liver. We had to find a liver donor her to keep her alive. And then the, just, the, just the insane story, right? It was last April. Uh, and then the liver transplant, thank God, was September. And then she was declared, knock on wood, alhamdulillah, as we say, cancer-free in January. And then what happened in January? Coronavirus. So it, it's like we've been living in a whirlwind uh, without stop. And in a strange way, speaking about resilience, uh, this is going to sound very odd to some of the listeners. We are in a much better position than most people who are suffering right now. And I, and I say this knowing that people are really suffering. I'm not saying this lightly. And the reason why we're in a much better position is the disruptive normal that people are adapting to the past six months has been our life for the past year. So, you know, I've, I have a conversation in the next hour where someone's like, you know, all these parents are like, how do we deal with coronavirus and our kids? My kids are having a great time. They're like, you know, they don't, they never want to leave the house because for my kids, our last year, Riada was, will we go to the hospital today? Will we have to stay in the hospital? Who's going to stay in the hospital? Who's going to take Ibrahim to school? The disruption, the, the trauma on our kids. Uh, my daughter had an NG tube. Uh, we had to check her tests, Right. And so compared to the craziness of last year, in a strange way, this, this year is kind of chill. You know, and I say that, I say that knowing how odd that and awkward that sounds. Uh, no, I, I, I think I know, I mean, I can't know what you mean, but uh, I, I, um, 
I read your article and there's been a plethora of articles when the lockdown started in terms of, well, I've been to the war zone. How can I, my lessons? And then there were some survivors who got angry. How can, you know, why can you, it can never be compared yeah. what we survived and all this stuff. So then afterwards it was just, okay, it cannot be compared, but there are some things that might help people who are in a situation that is, confinement and loss and grie collective grieving, uh, as, as um, a lot of um, psychologists have said. And I, you wrote an article in New York Times uh, recently where you actually wrote about a few tips um, that you, yeah. and lessons, I guess, that um, I, I, I appreciated. Would you mind sharing them? Oh, uh, the funny thing is, is I wrote it so long ago, I didn't even know what I wrote <laughs> because my brain. Well, well uh, uh, can you refresh you me? I, I, I remember I wrote it. Uh, let me see. I'm, I'm only saying that because I want to sound uh, intelligent for your uh, listeners. It was it was a piece I wrote. Uh, so this is what it was. It's, it's, you know, my toddler survived cancer, then came the coronavirus. And it, go, going back to your original question of, of, of our intention, we, we don't want to just share our story as navel gazing, right? Like, here's my story. Listen to me. Uh, we want to share our story with the intention that maybe our story can reveal lessons that can help people cope and endure the trauma and pain of not only just coronavirus, but anyone who might be going through cancer. Does that make sense? Like best practices, what we learned. We came out on the other side. This is, these are some tips. Hopefully it'll help. Um, and so it's, it's it, you know, connecting both traumas, the trauma of coronavirus that we're, we're going through right now, um, and, and what we endured or enduring is, um, is what kind of inspired that. And, and it was really interesting that people found it really useful. And so what, what I said was, and, and this is, again, for those who are listening, this is just my advice. Take it or leave it. I hope it helps. Uh, we human beings think we are in control. And then something like coronavirus happens. And you think you're in control, but something like cancer happens. And as a father, your job, right? Talk to Mustafa. Like it's just most guys are like, my job is to solve problems. I'm the dad, uh, right? How do you solve a, a global pandemic? You can't. How do you solve cancer? You can't. And so there's nothing more humbling in life, but at the same time, it makes, makes you feel so powerless that you can't control anything. And so the first lesson is a Muslim proverb, if you will, it, it, which is a saying of the Prophet Muhammad, which is uh, tie your camel and then put your faith in God, which means do everything you can in your human power to control the situation, but then you have to let go. You have to let go. And so that's what we did during Nuseba's journey is because there's only so much I could do to fight cancer. And so I told Allah in my prayers, my thoughts, that I'll do everything I can to save this girl. But at the end of the day, I'm humbled by this thing called cancer, by, this, by the universe in which I cannot fix this. And so then you have to give yourself peace to let it go. And I think that's important, especially during coronavirus. There's only so much we can do. You have, you're a parent, I'm a parent. You're recording this from like your bedroom. I'm recording this from my, my bedroom, praying to God that my kids don't burst in through the door, which they might any second, right? Uh, we don't know what's gonna happen with the economy, but we do what we can and we let it go. The second advice was accept help. And I think that's very difficult for some people, especially myself, people who I think pride themselves on doing things themselves and not asking for help and stubbornness, but we need help and because we need each other. You can't survive coronavirus and you cannot survive cancer without a community, uh, whatever that community looks like. 
So ask for help, give help, accept help. It was the generosity of a community that helped save Nuseba, not just medicine, not just prayers, not just healthcare, but over 500 donors, Riyadh, mostly strangers, stepped up to give a piece of their liver for my, for my girl. Uh, and alhamdulillah, the person who stepped up was an anonymous donor who we now know, Sean, uh, Sean and his wife, uh, Rida, not Riyadh, uh, who, who stepped up to help a little girl save her life. So ask help. The third thing is give up on normal. Let me repeat this. Give up on normal. And you, a survivor, a Bosnian, you know this, uh, when your life is hijacked with uh, a chaos or trauma uh, or a disruption, you create new normals every day. And I heard a lot of people in June, in May say, oh, we're going to get to a new normal. It's going to be a new normal. I kept telling them, uh, wait on that normal. And now we're almost in August and that normal hasn't arrived. So you give up on normal and you live in the now as much as you can and you roll with the punches. I think there's something about allowing yourself that elasticity and flexibility that, that gives you a type of resilience also, right? Because there's a lot of people who are, who are just, it'll go back to normal, it'll go back to normal, it'll go back to normal, and it hasn't. Even in a macro sense with Trump, it'll go back to normal, won't it? His new tone, Riyadh, he has a new tone and you're like, he has no new tone. This is who he is. Accept a new reality and respond accordingly. Um, that can help you mentally uh, ease into the new disruptive normal with an elasticity that is needed to um, improvise and be resilient. And then quickly, the fourth thing I would say is in this chaos, do things that you have control over. So do these small things that you actually have control over, like cooking, like playing with your kids, uh, like certain hobbies. It might seem silly, but once you are, if you are in a situation where you literally have no control over everything, we human beings need to feel like we have some domain of our, that belongs to us and, and something that gives us joy. So you could be like, at least I can sew. The universe can't take that away from me. At least I can cook. The universe can't take that away from me. At least I can watch this movie that makes me laugh. I think that's very important to lean into joy, to have joy. And then the final thing I would say is, Trauma, pain, loss, loss. Loss allows us in a very strange way to pay attention to the things that really matter in a way that when we have excess, we don't pay attention. When everything is normal and calm, we don't really give that its due or we don't really value it or we're not really, you know, we're not really conscientious about it. But once it's taken from us, that's when we go, this is what matters. I don't care about the job. I care about my wife more. I don't care that much about fame. I care about my kids' health. You know, I don't care about that time when my father said that to me three years ago. I miss not being, not seeing my father during quarantine. And so this is just some helpful lessons, I hope. I didn't mean to talk for so long, but, uh, I, you know, this is what helped us last year, uh, especially, you know, when you live as a father with the daily realization that might, you might lose your daughter. Uh, you, it makes you think. It makes you think about what's really important. And so I, my daughter's right in front of me right now. I could see see them. They're drinking through their uh, Paw Patrol and frozen cups. They're, they're, my son's having a banana. My daughter's having chicken nuggets. Uh, they're smiling and they're waving at me right now. What's that? It was her birthday It was her birthday, was her birthday two weeks ago. She just turned four. And about several times a day, both my wife and I, several times a day, even now, uh, I look at her and I go, she's alive. That's wow. She's alive. And what else matters? Uh, so 
You asked me a simple question. I went on a rant. I'm sorry. No, it's exactly. I mean, that basically kind of is the summary of your article that you don't remember because the message <laughs> as well. But it's also uh, basically you you nailed uh, the the science behind resilience in terms of well, what is it that makes some people more resilient? And uh, of course, there is no one case because it's not just personality; it's environment as well, and the conditions which allow that. Um, support to help and everything you said. I do also want to add a little bit of a, just adding more knowledge to the listeners that there's, uh, besides the Prophet Muhammad saying that, that there's a really important notion of sabr uh, yeah. in Muslim traditions, which is an Arabic word for uh, patience and sometimes also translated as resilience. It's mentioned, you know, nearly hundred times in the Quran and it's linked with prayer and the connection of the Sabr and the shukr, which is the gratitude. I think it also matters uh, for uh, for inspiring an action as well. So you know, can, I, can you say that? I, I, you know, you said sabr and shukr, and I'm glad you did. And and don't worry for those who are listening. This is not going to be a religious hour. Uh, but uh, no, it's important because it's so universal, yeah. uh, and I think that's why I precisely want to share it because just to kind of keep breaking the barriers or and stereotypes and share, I. I you know, I read uh, so much about the science of resilience watch yeah. because it personally interests me. But honestly, so much of it I get from reading books on spirituality from yeah, my faith. Of course, of course. So for me, it's funny. I read something and I'm like, mm, yeah, sabr, yeah, shukr, yeah, we know the benefits of it. Yeah, we know that. So to me, it's, uh, it's, it's funny uh, because it just shows the universality of the main messages from all faiths, I, I guess. No, so, but you're right. You're right. Because if you look at mindfulness exercises, um, it's it's basically for students of religion. We read it and we go, and I had the same like uh, uh, conclusion. I'm like, oh, this is the soul of Sufism 101. Gratitude, uh, patience, breathing, uh, rumination. Uh, you know, that's, I mean, these are exercises which are helping uh, citizens of the modern world but if you really just step back from it, it makes sense because in Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and Christianity and Judaism, I mean, these religions and these religious practices go back thousands of years. So it's a continuation of a spiritual science that nonetheless has been perfected and has worked and is now just being kind of rebranded uh, yeah. as mindfulness. But yeah. it's fine. It works, right? So if, you don't, if you're not comfortable calling it Sufism, call it mindfulness. Uh, and, and what they said is what sabr and shukr, again, sabr means patience, shukr means gratitude. There's another saying, there was a, there's a famous Sufi sheikh in Islam, a sheikh Abdul Qadir Jalani, right? So they asked him, and there's all these books written, and he gives answers. So they say, you know, where are the two keys that open up the, the, the gates of paradise? So he said, one key is the key of sabr, that no matter what afflicts you, will the believer have a, a degree of patience? with his mm -hmm. creator and with himself and with others. The other key is the key of shukr, gratitude. Despite whatever befalls upon you, as you are in the state of loss, what are you still grateful for? And if you can hone these two keys, like wield them, the sabr and shukr, then you will unlock figuratively, literally paradise, which is a tall ask, really is, for people who are suffering. But if you look at resilience and the people who made it, and the people who do make it, it's it's people who were able to have that patience and the people who, despite it all, still look back and are grateful for what they have, um, which is a tough, tough, it's tough. I, when, I, when I say this, I, I want to acknowledge also that this is not easy. 
Yeah, um, absolutely. It, it's, you know, a muscle that has to be built over and over and actively. Actively. It's like a muscle. You have to hone it. And there's, yeah. and there's days of darkness. There's days of, if we're going to go Arabic, let's throw another word in there. Waswasa. Waswasa mm. means the evil whispers. It's like Gollum. It's like when, the, when you're at your low point and the demons come and say, give it all up. What's the point? It sucks. The, the, the waswasas attack all of us. They attack me during what happened during Nuseba's journey. I mean, how can they not? Will yeah. she survive? Why is this mm-hmm. happening to us? What's going to happen in the future? Uh, we did everything right. Why is this happening to a two-year-old girl? Um, the waswasa. W- my business was about to start off. Why did the pandemic hurt me? Why are other people doing well during the pandemic? Why did my marriage fall apart during the pandemic? Why am I lonely? You know, it, and so this can eat away at a person. It can really, it's like a quicksand. And once you go in that quicksand, it's very hard to come out. And so we were very lucky, Sarah and I, that in both of us, both independently and together, we didn't allow ourselves into the Waswasa whirlpool. And each time we saw ourselves getting there, we just said, you know what, this happens. We don't know why it happened. Cancer happens. It, it's another thing that happened to our daughter. But at the same time, a lot of good has happened. We have a family. We have a home. We have a life. And we have medicine. We have healthcare. And inshallah, we'll, go, we'll get through this. And that mindset, I think, really helped us as a family survive this with, with I think, Subber and Sugar. And we're very lucky for it. Very lucky. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, that spiritual balance and spiritual grounding is so important. And for me, it's Islam for, and I'm always saying whatever works for you, just seek it because the science shows it. Uh, But I think that it's a continual work. And um, one of the questions that I was going to ask you, and I don't know how much time we have, because I know you have to go to a different interview, you're a busy man, is that how do you remind yourself of that um, resilience? Because because we, it's, it's, you know, like me, and it's funny because I usually don't wear these because it makes a weird sound. I have, I wear bracelets with verses of the Quran on it. Mm. Um, and so I don't, I didn't do it. I don't, I'm not into tattoos or stuff like that, but I, the kind of person I realized that visual um, reminders help me so much. So randomly throughout the day, you know, so I have Sabr here. And I have, verily with every hardship comes ease, which is the verse from the Quran 94, 6. Mm. It's very important for me when I, it's tough time to just look at it and to remember. And then here um, is Alhamdulillah, uh, which is another way to like thank God. And then I have here all is well. Because I I did all those personality tests, which made like uh, a recommendation that I need to keep telling myself all is well to remind myself. What are you? Are you INTP? Uh Oh my God. It's so many like anagrams and stuff like that. What and I did the Gretchen, the what was it like the happiness project? Yeah, and yeah, in, yeah. In all of them, um, it, it just happened that I am, um, which is so normal considering my background, that I'm very prone to like anxiety. Um, and <laughs> my husband calls it uh, Balkan paranoia, where no matter what, you know, like I think that there's an evil thing lurking from the corner and there's no way that something that's good might last because where I come from, like... Well, it makes sense. It's survivor. It's survivor trauma. Exactly, exactly. So um, so he says it's Balkan for and I'm like, no. So, But you know what? So we have these constant conversations whether sometimes being a pessimist uh, is good because then when something good happens, you're like, wow, what is that? So, so you, you are like me and Sarah is like Mustafa. Sarah, Sarah is like your perpetual, like Sarah is this like kind hearted woman who yeah. empathizes with everyone. And if, if it starts raining pebbles, she'll make a game out of it. 
And she'll be like, let's avoid the pebbles. And I'm like, it's raining pebbles, woman. Uh, and I'm kind of, I'm an optimist also, but I'm, a, I'm more of the pragmatist. I'm more of a cynical optimist than my wife. Uh, I'm more a little bit more mistrusting. I'm a little bit more cautious. I'm more yeah. bold in my career in what I say, but I'm a little bit more cautious in, in when it comes to trusting. I'm way more cautious when it comes to trusting because not comparing, you know, based on my 20s, long story short, same things happen. I guess you could call it trauma. Just a lot of, lot of stories that my wife, that most of my peers have not gone through when it came mm. to just losing everything and just, just, just it was tough. Uh, and mm. so that forged my path in a different way. So for me, it's always fight or flight. I'm in a perpetual fight flight. And I have OCD as a gift from my father, which is an anxiety disorder. And so I'm always in the car with my foot on the gas pedal, even when the, if the car is in neutral, uh, with the wheels spinning. Uh, but, but the irony is when the poop hits the fan, I am very good in chaos. I'm excellent in crisis. Yeah. I'm very calm. I'm the guy you want in your corner. I'll keep my shit together. Uh, and the irony is that even though there's like raging tempest inside my mind, outwardly people are like, would you have to leave? You're very calm. Uh, and then during the bar exam, uh, during law school, people later told me they sat next to me because they liked my calming energy. I'm like, are you guys crazy? Do you have any idea what goes inside my head? So I think you and I are similar that way. It, it's it, what do you, what, what is Muslim called? Balkan paranoia. It's, Balkan paranoia. Yeah, I think it's just like, we are always waiting for the demons to come through the door and we never want to be get caught unprepared. Yeah. Whereas my wife is just like, oh, look at the demon. He must be hungry. Let's feed it. And I'm yeah. like, it's a demon. <laughs> so it's a nice balance. But I, but I did hear in another podcast that, you know, Sarah, that you don't think people can be nice just for being nice and how Sarah says, no, they're nice. So I want to tell you, watch, people can be nice. Sarah, I'm I'm with Sarah on this one. Yeah, I'm trying to be. I'm I'm trying to get a lesson. My my always my always thing is like, why are they so nice? Why are they so? Nice? What do they want from me? They must want something. And she goes, No. Sometimes people just want to be nice. I'm like, No, no. There has to be an angle. She goes, There's no angle. Sometimes people are just kind. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I've changed in the past year. I forced myself to change because of what happened with Nuseba. Seeing so many people who are strangers reach out on Twitter, on email, on Facebook, strangers who've kept up with their journey, money that was raised for us behind our back, the 500 strangers, people who, I'm telling you, without exaggeration, people message me saying, I hate your politics. I hate mm -hmm. everything that you tweet. I mm -hmm. hate all of your articles. I'm praying for your daughter. Mm -hmm. And so once you're confronted with that, it, yeah. it, it forced me to change and realize that there's still goodness in the world and people still have the capacity and desire to be good in this day and age. You know, it's, it's, it's sometimes we need opportunities and moments that ask of us to be good, you know? Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and, and, and I feel like there's many of us, there's many of us in these, in these toxic times who, who want to be good again, who want to be kind, who want to be generous and decent. And I think there's something about Nuseba in particular a girl, a two-year-old girl, a three-year-old girl, a baby, which really just, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people I told and I could mm -hmm. see them. It was like, it was like a phantom punch hitting them in the chest. They said, mm -hmm. how old is she? I said, three. They're like, oh. Mm -hmm. you, you know, and like, to the point where like a very educated adult said, I didn't even know kids could get cancer. Uh, mm -hmm. They're just like something like hits them. They're like, why is this happening? Why is this happening to a girl? And so I think there's something about Nuseba as a, if I may, as a character, 
in this story that that generates so much worldwide empathy that a baby girl getting hit with cancer who might not survive we you know we're going to rally around this girl at least this girl will survive inshallah and so alhamdulillah she's running around right now beating up her brother so there you go yeah um I, and that actually also confirms the power of the story and i think that that was one of the beautiful manifestations of the good that can come out of social media because a lot of that stuff can come out of it as well. Um, and I do want to celebrate Sarah. Uh, and I love the way that you talk about her. And I hope to meet her. And she is also super, super um, successful physician. And super. I do want to mention that she also, I loved how you said, uh, wrote that she introduced four years ago, Impacts of Systemic Racism. Yeah. Uh, in healthcare in her required Georgetown course. Yes. World. And I do hope as well, like you said, that that will um, happen in other courses um, as well. So kudos to Sarah. I, inshallah, hope to meet her. You should she, actually have her on your podcast. She's better than me. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's on my list. She should. She's great because uh, she could tell you from two different aspects of it, which I think are interesting. Number one, as a, as a Muslim woman, as a woman of color, as you know, there's, um, I mean, this goes for women across the board. Uh, the double standards in life say that the test of a woman's success is marriage right? The test of a man's success is money. Uh, so you can be a 38-year-old woman who's just crushed it in life. But if you're single, they go, oh, poor girl. Uh, my wife was divorced twice in her 20s, uh, but was very resilient in her outlook in life. And then I'm, I think her third marriage, I think I'm her third marriage. Uh, but also she's a woman who spent her whole life really helping victims of trauma. And the victims of trauma are not just the, the people she met in Kashmir or in Haiti. Uh, there are also people in D.C. when she worked at the clinic. Uh, you know, uh, she's a family health practitioner who believes in community health. And I'm glad you mentioned that because a couple of years ago, her and a few others are like, we need to talk about racism in healthcare. How can we not? And I think I could say this. I hope I, she won't get in trouble. There was pushback at Georgetown University, but she persisted. And now the course that they, they, that they were teaching for, um, you know, uh, medical students, now the, the medical school is like, this needs to be taught across the medical uh, college. Uh, and so it just goes to show you that, uh, that you know, just having sometimes one or two people of color in a, in a situation who care and who fight for something. And now Sarah, like her extra, extra, extra job is to like help chair this. So anyway, that's my wife. You should talk yeah, to her. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. We'll do that. Um, so Waj, I know I have to go five short questions. Yeah, and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll answer them in, a, in, a, in, in the way I have not answered the others. I'll be brief, I promise. No, I, I mean, there were literally bazillion other questions that I had on my mind to ask you, but I know this, this went so nicely in so many other ways that uh, we'll do it for at another time, uh, inshallah. Um, it's nice to talk to you is what I'm trying to say. Uh, so <laughs> this is something that I do at the end of my podcast, um, kind of to uh, make people feel even more um, closer to, to the person behind just uh, and beyond the professional um, work and scholarship. So the first question is, which for you is quite um, like pertinent. Once the current emergency is over, whatever that end up being, because we're like living on a different planet compared to uh, Europe and elsewhere. Um, any temporary awareness will also disappear. Is there something that you would not want to forget from this pandemic uh, period and lockdown? Mm, that's a good question. It's a very good question. I would not like to forget how we need people. 
I'm uh, a loner. I'm an only child. Even though people think I'm very extroverted, uh, I'm not. Uh, I think it's important to walk away from this knowing how important a community is, how human connection is necessary for our happiness, and how we are all so connected. Uh, mm -hmm. The essential workers that we otherwise forgot and that we, who we don't pay and who we don't give health care, without them, we would not have our essential lives. Mm -hmm. And it is important for us to remember that, that we're all connected and that we can all be humbled and that the essential worker who was forgotten was the one who gave us our packages and our food. And the doctors died saving us because some people wouldn't wear freaking masks. Um, and, and maybe we should give health care to everyone. If people had health care, they'd be healthier. And if people had more money, uh, they'd be better off. And this rising tide would have lifted all of us. So the, the, the thing I want to really remember is we're all connected and we all need a community. Um, and, and it's because, look, people are missing it. People are missing going to concerts, going to parks, going to movie theaters, just having a barbecue. Uh, people are missing just talking to people, right? And so that's something that um, I hope we never forget, myself included. Yeah, I absolutely agree with everything you said. Um, which of your personality traits, Waj, has been the most useful? Not the Ooh. best trait, but the, but the most useful. I'm resilient. <laughs> I am. I can. I can take a beating. I can. Take, I can take a beating more so than most people, and still keep going and be useful. Let me actually. That's one. But the one that's been really useful, like I've mentioned before, is I'm good in chaos. Huh? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's uh, awesome. More so than most. More so than most. I can keep a level head. You won't see me crying in the corner. I. 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 I I'll. I'll I'll get it done. And I think mm. that's, that's, I'm, I'm, I mean, that it's, it's a, it's connected to my OCD, I'm sure in some mm. way, but uh, I got, that has helped me. I, I've kept my cool for the past year, even during the cancer. My wife said that it says like, I, you never saw me losing my mind, getting angry, bawling in the corner, uh, like shouting at the heavens. I, I got, I got things done. That's really good. Good, good to have a parent and husband like that, let me tell you. Um, when you have 30 minutes of free time, how do you pass that time? Don't, like free time, free time, like what yeah, is free time? So don't, don't judge me, don't judge me. You can judge me. Uh, three things, oh three things I do. Uh, I try my best to stay, to keep reading. So I like to read uh, uh -huh. and or... Uh, I, I, I want to say I like, I like to watch something, but not really. I like, I get, I just scroll through Netflix and I get exhausted without seeing anything. Uh, but then the third thing, which is you can laugh at me is I'm, I invest 30 minutes when I have time to play video games. So I play video games after the kids sleep and, and through the pandemic, I finished two, I'm playing my third one. And after this one, I'm going to play another one. So that's what I do. Awesome. Yeah, I know that video games will play a big part of my life once my boys get to that oh, age. Oh, yeah, one more year. <laughs> one more, is it? Um, so, yeah. Um, what skill or craft would you like to master? What, 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 what would I like to what master? Skill, what skill or craft? Ooh, ooh that's good. Ooh. Um, I'll give you three. Um, and you'll laugh at them, maybe. Uh, I would like to learn more languages. The people who are gifted, at, I, I made a mistake. I could only speak like three barely. Um, I would like to pick up an instrument. 
and learn one before I die. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have stubby fingers, but if I could just get one. And mm-hmm. I've always admired people who dance not and, and, and people who dance well, not, not even professional dance, like my friends who could just cut loose on the dance floor and just get into it and like not, not care, but they still look good. I was cursed with two left feet. I'm terrible on the dance. I'm so bad that people look at me and go, we didn't think you were that bad, but you are bad. Um, if I can learn how to dance, uh, which is, a, I don't know, I, I, I would really enjoy it. You know, you know it, Waj. At least you know it. I know some people in my proximity who are bad dancers and who don't know it. Uh, is it Mustafa? Yes. Yeah. But does he, he doesn't does, bad. Does he, he have Turkish he, arrogance? He has Turkish arrogance? He's, no, he just is completely not conscious or thinking about it. He doesn't even know what the good dancer or a bad dancer might be. He doesn't, but, that's like not in his part of the brain. Like, but that, I envy him. That's fantastic because... Ignorance is bliss, let me tell you. Ignorance is bliss. For him, not for me, because I like dancing. I'm so, I'm fully aware of how atrocious I am. Let it be known. <laughs> so yeah, so I just tell him like shake left your right, shake it, shake your hips left <laughs> and right, and he does it, but it's even off. Anyway, it's okay. That's the let's love, be the love. You have love. Yeah. And I do just want to say before five, fifth question is that uh you have a new book deal that I, if you want to tell us shortly about it, but when you put a posted a tweet, I have something to announce. I kid you not, and don't judge me. Besides, like thinking, okay, he got a new job and he's gonna tell us now, and I hope to, you know, hear what it is. I thought, like, you got so creative, and you need to put, like, make a YouTube channel or cooking show. Oh. <laughs> yeah. got, no, I'm not serious. Like, you're, and I'm like thinking, is this like you're cooking bazillion things that look yeah. so good? And yeah. I also uh, show that to my husband. Is well. like, look what watched it, you know? Like, yeah, so I have, should... to stop, I have to stop posting photos because my male friends are like, yo. You're making Lee, it look bad. Upping the standards. And, standards yeah, like, my, 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 my homies are like, yo, my wife's on my case. It's a pandemic. Oh you stop. Like, seriously, do all that? I, like, you, yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, these, I started off cooking. That's the one thing I picked up during the pandemic, just to save time and effort and, and energy. So wow. I hadn't cooked anything. And I, and I started with my mom's recipes and my mom FaceTiming me. And then you keep doing it three or four times. And then I got confident. And then I take after my mom. You have to cook a lot for a lot of people but the one thing i'm good at i think is i can i'm limited with four stoves and an oven so i keep the four things going and then while those four things are going i think of some other stuff so that's my one strength is i can balance multiple dishes and then i have to cook a lot at the same time because i you know time and kids and then i'm getting more ambitious and my wife uh who i call like this she has white girl taste because she grew up in florida and she like doesn't like spices but my wife really loves these dishes so okay. so she's like i don't because she likes the market is the market yeah. is waiting for you when yeah, you yeah. finish so, this book, when you finish this book she said it also she said do she said do a cookbook where like you talk like about like a dad learning how to cook and you you do like 10 chapters on 10 different dishes and give a story about each dish yes, exactly and then give and the I'm recipe like look, like look there are people who are if she said it and i noticed that and i'm like you know because i th- see her thing and i'm thinking of chrissy tigan or tegan or <laughs> so like yeah, I think that really uh, you should take this idea seriously once you finish the other book. Uh, do you want to tell us the title? Yeah, the, the book that I have to finish in a couple of months and start is called Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on How to Become American, uh, which uh, is a big title, but it's fun. It's going to be a memoir polemic, and basically it gives you top 10, uh, tongue-in-cheek, 10, 10 ways to become American. It goes back to our conversation. Uh, uh, how people of color, oftentimes who are American, are always seen as the other. And I'm going to 
talk about hopefully some universal themes, but through a very specific story of being a Pakistani Muslim kid, the son of immigrants, uh, growing up in a country which sees him as both us and them. And after mm-hmm. 9-11 sees him as the enemy, even though uh, I've, you know, uh, not ISIS and Al-Qaeda and how I have to apologize for the criminal actions of people I've never met, but at the mm-hmm. same time, how to build bridges. And so it's going to be blunt. It's going to be honest. It's going to be funny. And each chapter will have a specific story, which I think will be interesting, but then it gives me an opportunity to talk about what we've been talking about in this podcast to connect the dots and hopefully it'll be 250 pages. And I hope it'll be entertaining, but also helpful. Exactly. Looking forward to that. And then to the other book that he will write yeah, yeah. Now we know because we're pressing him. So that's at five, uh, fifth, last question. Are any of your friends completely opposite to you or are most of them similar to you? A very good question. Um, growing up, I would say opposite because I went to an all boys Jesuit Catholic high school. I was a token Muslim. I was, uh, uh, you know, the one of the only few brown people. At the same time, those were superficial differences in a way because they were similar in the sense that I think we were goofy, curious, creative, hopefully smart. Um, nowadays, when you have kids, as you know, your social circle gets smaller. Uh, but mm-hmm. we, I, I feel like we have a good gender ratio dynamic. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm trying more. I mean, my my network is wide. So I would say growing up in the Bay Area, diverse Bay Area, I've been very lucky that if you want to look at differences when it comes to ethnicity, gender, religion, yes. Uh, when it comes to closer circles, I think in the past two years, it's, it's leaned more Muslim and American and South Asian. And that's something that you know my wife and I, she's the same. She grew up in Florida, very diverse, where she was like the token brown and token Muslim kid. Uh, that's something where we want to merge it more, more and more. We want to merge those, you know, how we grew up with with our close circle. We want to diversify. So we're getting there. That's a very intentional on my part, especially especially for our kids. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Well, um, we have a play date once this is yes. done. We said that that's going to happen. I know we have uh, places to be and book to write. So all the more and bigger thanks. Um, there were a lot of other questions, especially now that you were mentioning all the. Muslimness. We're going to talk about Rami. Uh, I hope he wins Emmy. Uh, he got nominated. We're talking about uh, the Hulu series that um, that I really like, uh, despite some, despite some weird moments where even I was like, "What is going on?" There are some with, weird moments. Oh my god, we're just pushing the you know pushing the barriers. But I do really hope that that is one of the first, not first, but I mean yes, first Emmy nominated. But we need more and as many Muslim stories right. uh, because. Rami, I mean, when people and a lot of Muslims got on his, like, started complaining and bashing, it was just, he's just, he just said, this is a story, that's right. a story, not the story. So we just right. need more and as many. So that said, um, I look forward to um, reading your book, Staying in Touch. Thank you so much. No, thank and, you. Uh, thank you. And, uh, and, and thank you for letting me just, like, vomit stuff out there. Cut anything you want. Uh, but but this was very good. I really enjoyed this conversation. Congratulations on your podcast. I hope it grows. And then uh, I would love to speak again. Thank you, Waj. And, and to everybody else, thanks so much for listening. Uh, feel free to check out other episodes, um, give some ratings, write me comments, get in touch. And uh, stay tuned for more conversations with people from all around the globe. Hold tight to those you love and talk to you soon. Bye.